Hello. Hi, Tom. So it's been a busy week for you. Has it? I've just been catching up on all your audio today. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, I was just thinking again that uh, it's such a great feeling to be talked out. <laughs> you know? <laughs> I mean, I, I never experienced that until in my whole life until just a couple of years ago. Well, not even a couple of years ago, probably a year ago. Uh-huh. I was uh-huh. always starved for conversation about stuff that I was interested in. I never have known people who actually interested me <laughs> in talking to, you know. So this is an interesting... I, I have three topics. In fact, I have a fourth from one of your recent guests, but I, I probably should start with an apology uh, from the last show. I got a very long email from Gerald de Jong that made a number of points. The first was that his wife has never owned a Noble 8 T-shirt which makes me wonder if I probably had concatenated stories. Um, I, recall, I went back <laughs> Isn't to my, that interesting how memory works, you know? Yes, yeah. it is. I, I just put the two of those things together. So it turns out that she was actually quite offended. Like Gerald actually said to her, you know, this Tom Barbelay guy is saying that you wore a T-shirt to bed. And in response to that, my only offer was to send her a T-shirt. <laughs> and, and ask her to please wear it to bed. Yeah, to story reputation. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Aside from that, um, Gerald had a number of points and uh, associated with what I said about him, uh, particularly the bruised idealist and various other things. And I thought the only conclusion to that was for him to actually have a conversation with you. So, Gerald, uh, the ball is in your court. Oh, shit. Just- Good. Because <laughs> I got nothing more to say on the topic. And the irony was that aside from the uh, T-shirt, I my accounts associated in particular with his early project and things like that, he had a completely different account. Yeah. And I was able to quote precedent back at him and show him emails and websites and what yeah. have you. So anyway, moving on from that. Well, you know, it's uh, inter- this whole thing about Mary, There's, a, as you've heard, I, I'm, <laughs> I like telling stories. Certainly. And, and I've told a lot of these stories so many times that I have no idea what the truth is anymore. Yeah. You know, because, you know, I mean, all I have is the story now. <laughs> you know, the memory yeah. is long gone. It's been replaced by the story. And, I'm, and, in fact, I know that some of it is wrong. I'm not going to change my story either. The, the story of my first awakening, uh, there are a couple of details that are just simply wrong. Uh-huh. But it's a better story. It's simpler to understand as a teaching story the way it is. So I'm not going to change it. <laughs> for, for my ears only, Heron, it was a bikini though, and an extremely attractive. Oh woman. yeah, that's all. That all. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I didn't forget that. No, it Sorry. was about. I said I, I, usually in the story I say talk about uh, you know the vase face thing you know or the idea of that visual dichotomy you know you know what i'm talking about the psychological mm-hmm. things well <clears throat> that isn't in that book that's in another book of his uh-huh. so i thought that so apparently I, I actually my my recollection has over the years become that it was that image and the duality of that image that triggered my insight uh, but apparently it wasn't <laughs> it must have just been some words which actually uh, is interesting i you know anyway i just realized it cuz i just ordered the book cuz i haven't read it since then and i thought i'd reread it and i see there are no diagrams in it <laughs> mm. <laughs> how mm. interesting <laughs> yes so i went back through my email and i couldn't find it through email and i think it was a former coworker uh, the story is true i mean someone did say that their wife wore a a, a Noble Oak t-shirt to bed, but I had just, I guess, 
concatenated Gerald with that image, but apparently his wife was uh, offended, associated with that. So I said, okay, I'll send you a T-shirt, make it, make it simple. Um, but no, I think, uh, yeah, I think that would be a, an interesting topic of... Uh, yeah, Gerald has a number, of, uh, a number of interesting points, and I think you two would have a lot of fun together, so I'll put that back to him. Okay. So um, uh, a few of your conversations recently have sparked some um, interesting side effects in my own thinking... I think I've been in two minds with regards to raise the uh, director slash curb your enthusiasm writer fellow, because I found that a rather curious discussion on a number of levels. Oh, yes, I did, too. Frankly, I uh, was disappointed. Yes, I'm, I must confess that was my reaction as well. I think the... But I think we can get over... I think uh, I think I didn't really prepare him for what was going on. He, he was under the impression, I think, I think he came in there thinking he's been doing a lot of interviews, mm. you know, and I think despite the fact that I said I'm just here for a conversation, uh, my sense was that he was there for an interview. You know how you break that? You talk about his father being a breakfast cereal executive. You basically. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, you're right. I, uh, well, I'm learning. Yeah. <laughs> I'm learning well, I think, yeah. I mean, my feeling is that there are people that you wear gloves for and the people that you don't wear gloves for. And when someone says, I've told the story of my life a hundred times, it's really boring, it's actually, you know, that was as soon I sparked up Wikipedia from that one quote, <laughs> got the guy's story, which seems to be largely um, his own or his, I don't know if he has PR people. Um, but no, I found it a very curious interview for from a, a number of levels, and I think you're right. You will need to go in for probably around two or round three. Uh, yeah, I like him, and I think uh, he's done some good work. And, uh, mm. and the, I the respect the film. I feel. I mean, I've seen probably five films like that before I stopped watching them because I just can't. Yeah. I mean, the notion well, of the yeah. sound... But you got to realize that these movies aren't made for you and me. They're made for a different audience. And and they're <laughs> very... I think his movie is really good for some people. Mm. You know, mm. This is the TED conference discussion. Yeah, right. Yeah. Same thing. I, you know, just because it, I didn't learn anything new out of it doesn't mean it's not a worthy effort and that somebody couldn't learn something from I it. I guess my, my perspective is that this is now a genre of film of which both yeah, atheists yeah. Yeah. and everyone <laughs> kind of concatenate. They, Dawkins is thrown in there. He does his usual pictures. He's either weird oh, yeah, or yeah, right, those, yeah. those kind of things. The, fun, the funny thing that I got from it was Stephen Hawking <laughs> yeah. saying, I'm done with God questions. Yeah. And basically snubbing him. <laughs> he should have come in talking about women. I'm sure Hawking would have been down there in an instant if he the ladies, you know. You but mean anyway. Dawkins, right? Not, uh, no, Hawking. Oh, Stephen oh Hawking. I see what you mean. Yeah, okay, yeah. yeah. Returning to our physics <laughs> yeah. conversation yeah. earlier. Yeah. Um, but no, I think, uh, <laughs> You're right. Yeah. <laughs> this genre of filmmaking, I don't know. What the, I guess my feeling is because originally I used to, when I wrote in Divine Action Natural Selection, I wrote and did dialogue with uh, creationists and these kind of people, mm. and they're very PR savvy. And in contrast, artificial life folk are just uh, disorganized, yeah. Oh, yeah. rambling, yeah. and clearly disinteresting. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, I, I, I thought there, were, there, were, there was hope for the future in that kind of discussion, but the, this constant uh, PR... For example, I'm really interested how... 
he gets funding, how he actually creates yeah, yeah, the yeah. I was, I, I, I broached, the, I didn't really ask him, though, but I was really interested because I thought, man, I wish I could get somebody to fund me to go around the world and talk to all the people I want to talk to. You see, I'm curious, <laughs> if was, you know, reading about his father, I was wondering if kind of daddy had, or daddy's friends had put together some money as well, because there, there were aspects to this thing that just struck me. I mean, uh, you know, I, as you have a lot of uh, ill to say with regards to Nevadans, I have a lot of <laughs> ill to say with regards to folks from Southern California in this light. Um, and I think there's so much, um, not even falsity or nicety, but just so much kind of perversion from the truth that really the these narratives need to be, as, as you attempted, I think, chipped away slowly but surely. Um, and I certainly, I don't know, I guess... It was the kind of thing where I, at points, thought I can put this down, but really I want to see how it ends. I want to see if... And my only concern with it is that because... And this is something that I find through your um, your standard podcast. You have a lot of the very same conversations over and over again, and conversations that you and I have had oh, probably yeah. two or yeah, four times. Yeah, it's, well, it's just one big, uh, long conversation. <laughs> except it's not the same. I mean, the, the yeah. marriage rap, yeah. you know, yeah. these yeah. kind of yeah. things yeah. just... Uh, the interesting thing about the marriage rap is that you never mentioned that you were actually de facto or whatever you want to say married for a couple of years in that point because that yeah. adds a kind of version to the whole oh, topic. Oh, well, of course, yeah. yeah. No, it just it wasn't important for what I was trying to say. It's irrelevant. It was the theory I was interested in. Well, it wasn't a, no, but yeah. I, you know, no, I wasn't hiding it really. Uh, was I? But it makes it no, more interesting. Oh, if I say I was married, yeah. Well, yeah, yeah but when, then when I explain it, it sort of takes the wind out of it. I wouldn't, That's exactly I wouldn't my point. Romantic did it actually, it. did it actually, it gives, no, it gives a degree of depth and insight rather than just being this lone monastic individual. You're actually someone who has lived a life. You know, <laughs> well, such as it is, yes. <laughs> you can't shun that. I mean, I, I'd embrace all the aspects. Well, I've certainly it. got myself in trouble with women. I'll tell you, I've had my my share of of uh, sturm and drung. <laughs> with... <laughs> that in and of itself might make a, a very interesting uh, discussion. So here's a question for you, and this actually filters into my first topic of discussion. You mentioned translating anime. Yeah. Is that something you did with your wife, or was no, that no, connected? No, no, it was one of my up? students. It was uh, okay. the best English student I ever had. I, uh, she, she was so great. I, I, she's still a friend. I, I don't see her too often now because she's kind mm. of busy. But uh, yeah, she, and she loved English. She worked so hard, and she was, and she's good. She still makes some <laughs> misses some things, but yeah, you know, totally she's, she's yeah, I do. I still miss yeah. some things. So big deal, you know. Yeah, but uh, but you know, yeah, and so she was doing that just because she wanted to improve her English. It, mm -hmm. She wasn't getting paid for it. Hmm. But uh, she liked the challenge, and then she'd run them by me before she'd submitted them. Hmm. And it was interesting for me to find the ambiguities, you know, because when she'd hmm. say something in English that didn't, I just couldn't fit in. What I'd ha well, you probably heard me say that. I had her translate the characters literally, you know, hmm. in the order they come. And when she, every, I mean, and probably she did that 10 or 20 times over a period of, uh, you know, a few months. And every time she did it, I was just stunned by how you could possibly get from what she just said to me to the English sentence that she had constructed. Mm. <laughs> because the literal, you know, the, the, the sort of raw meaning of symbol followed by symbol followed by symbol 
is so foreign to English syntax. Yeah, and my understanding, my understanding through actually recent things that I'll explain in a, in a few minutes is that there is no there's no exact translation for Japanese to English. Well, it's a very no, no, well, there's no exact. Well, this is Chinese, but uh, they're somewhat similar in that sense. Mm-hmm. Well, there's no exact translation for any language. I mean, except maybe in some technical fields, uh, but in anything that involves emotions and personal life, uh, well, there's no exact translation from English to English. When I say something, whatever it is you experience is certainly not identical with what I experienced in saying it. I understand that, but I guess what I'm saying is that there are, there are certain levels of ambiguity, for example, from German to English and English to German. Yeah, it's, some but, languages are far more foreign. Yes, yeah, yeah, yes. and Asian languages are from another planet. Yes. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. So I guess that was that was the point I was making in, in some regard. So the anime stuff is something that, um, as, as I've mentioned, I'm concluding my 1993 writing, and I thought, which I think I've had this discussion with you, that the way to get it out to a different group of readers is to create a, a role-playing game, which also de- it describes to a far greater degree of depth. This actually came through your advice associated with the glossary. As soon as I started writing the glossary, immediately I realized that there was a depth that just yeah. wasn't being conveyed. Yeah. Yeah. So I started writing all that out, and then I thought this is basically a rule set for a role-playing game, or at least a degree of depth that people could explore. And looking at the convention circuit and these kind of things, it seems to be you know people that might actually get into this. Yeah. So I went back through my rule set, and one of the rule sets that I had particular fondness for was a, a group called Palladium Books that produced a, a game called Robotech back in the mid to late 80s. And then I went back and I thought, there must be Robotech-related podcasts. This was all of a week ago. So I put Robotech into iTunes, and I got one podcast back. And this is the most vitriolic podcast you have ever heard. This is literally deconstructing all the fans of Robotech, calling them all kinds of names, all kinds of racist and just generally. This is, this is so good, it is art, Tara. Yeah, I can, I can imagine, yeah. The podcast yeah. is called Robotech Fan. This is, gets one star in iTunes, multiple uh, negative reviews, really quite hostile reviews about the, like deconstruct. I mean, when he runs out of people to abuse, he starts abusing his ex girlfriend in, in dialogue. Was it, is it just a monologue? It is a monologue. Yeah. Okay. It is a monologue, but it is a monologue long, which is. And how long does it go? Two hours. Two hours rough. of a monologue? Oh, God. Uh, yeah, guy, we're clearly crazy as hell. This yeah. guy is just beyond <laughs> insane. But it's, it's beautiful. It's it's art. It is so yeah, bad. Yeah, I know. I gotcha. I know. And it's got yeah. nothing to do with Robotech. It's got nothing yeah. to do with the original content. It is all about this guy's psychology yeah. in. And as someone who has occasionally had to do model off, and he does this uh, every week, three or something? to four times a week, three to four times a week for the last thirty-five years, probably. Uh, well, <laughs> well, for um, for at least the past five years, five he's up years. to. Wow. He's, he's he's got more podcasts than I you do. I thought I was crazy. Shit, this guy's oh, no. crazy. No, and the thing that struck me about this was while I listened to it, I listened to about five hours solid over Holy a two-day shit. period. Just because I couldn't believe yeah, that yeah. this was... But You're waiting is, for him to stop and start laughing, right? You know, he's just been... The thing is on. that it's all, it's all um, strange kinds of logical fallacies oh, in, yeah. embodied in just vitriol. Yeah, um, wow. So I listened to this for about 
uh, well, for a few days. And then I thought there must be better Robotech podcasts out there. <laughs> and in so. parallel, in parallel to this, I was actually doing more research. Robotech is fascinating. The story behind Robotech, and this has Heronstone overlaps, is that um, in the early 80s, a licensing company had licenses to three separate anime features. And they took the three separate animes, and my understanding is either with or without audio translation, they worked it into a single film or a single series, which became, I think, 80-odd um, half-hour cartoon series mm. for, for television. Yeah. And they rewrote a completely new story. So by taking these three disconnected films and, and segmenting it and putting the aliens yeah. and the, the mecha together, they then created a unique story which was, which was narrated in English. And from this point, um, I then discovered another fellow's podcast who had actually done things like interviewed the original creators, uh, interviewed the role-playing game fellow as well, who I find fascinating. And this, in stark contrast um, to your uh, discussion with the, the film producer, they really pull no punches in terms of the questions. I mean, it, I've referenced previously the William, S., uh, the William Gaines III, the Mad Magazine uh, publisher interview, in terms of just a blueprint of how you publish a comic book. Very honestly, no holes barred. And similarly, both with regards to... And these, these are... Um, they're not anime creators. They're licenses that then dub the anime with English and completely manipulate the stories. I mean, obviously, the rules associated with violence and nudity and various other things, if they have to move it from, I guess, Japanese film or whatever to NBC primetime or NBC for kids, they have to take amazing... They really chop the story up well, into probably, tiny yeah, little... Yeah, they rewrite the thing. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Completely rewritten. Um, and I just thought that was absolutely fascinating. And I was thinking about your... Was your... Um, student's connection with anime associated with direct translation, or was she part of this school of redubbing? Rather, they have uh, dub or no, sub. No, That's well, the... this was uh, this was for print anime, mm. not not uh -oh. video. Okay, okay. So, so we were looking at, at at you know at print at anime print mm. you know books you know mm. that were actually it was sort of interesting. They were originally written in Japanese. They'd been translated into Chinese. Oh, gosh. And the Chinese is what we were translating back into English. Gosh. So that, you know, may have had something to do with it. But my understanding is that there's a fair, you know, those languages are pretty similar, especially mm. in the kanji characters. Uh, I mean, mm. they're identical, actually. So, uh, well, not identical, excuse me, but very similar. <laughs> so, uh, it, but still, that's a possible source of confusion for sure. Yeah, no, it was interesting to me because as a child, probably when I was 10, 11, 12, I used to, it was shown at like 5 or 6 a.m. on a Saturday morning in Australia, and I used to wake up and watch Robotech. But now I realized that it was something that was completely artificial. It wasn't anime in any way, shape, or form. It was very much, and it had a very strong kind of American militarism, uh, you know, righteous heroism against yeah. aliens and all this kind of stuff. It was, in fact, a, a bastardization of American culture up until that point and <laughs> yeah. just taking very much almost daubing, really, in terms of taking the the raw negatives, basically, and then turning it into something that was completely different. Do you different. remember uh, that Woody Allen film? I don't remember the name of it. What's Up, Tiger Lily or something like that? Yeah. Where he took a Japanese... A crime oh, yes, movie, yes. and just yeah. put a new soundtrack on it and turned it yeah. into a comedy. Yeah, <laughs> that was great. 
Yeah, no, I do remember that actually. I do remember that, and it is it is a it is a thing in and of itself in Australia. Well, that really is an art. Yeah. I mean, you think about yeah. that. Now in Australia, they used to take old uh, crime dramas and completely. There was one called Barjas, which was a completely different crime drama, but they had all this, and it was it was played late night on on Saturday nights, and I remember watching it just because it was, as you say, quite surreal to see what was a, a very bad Australian cop show being completely redubbed for satirical <laughs> comedy. Um, but yeah, I, I'm, I'm relatively immune to anime as a form. I had, when I was in university, uh, when I lived on campus, there was a fellow who was very interested in the kind of crossover porn element and would kind of forcibly sit. He was a relatively large fellow, probably about six, eight, six, nine. Uh, and he would kind of forcibly sit us all down and, and force us to watch this stuff. And I found it just really, I don't know, bizarre. It was, it was culturally, um, very bizarre to me. And I really didn't have much interest in, I don't well, know. Watching porn with a bunch of guys. That's pretty fucking but it wasn't, bizarre, right? It there. wasn't, por- it wasn't porn. Well, this is the thing. I mean, I think, <laughs> I think basically one's version of pornography needs is a very, and we've talked about this with oh, regards yeah, sure. to the German urination movie. Yeah. This notion that, um, well, what turns on one person porn. is, yes. You know, food yeah. is clearly pornography the way uh, the way it's marketed. That, that's yeah. as good as porn you can get, man. <laughs> yeah. No, I went to, um, we we really eat at very few restaurants here, even though there are a number of apparently very good restaurants. We mainly eat sushi actually when we go out. Yeah. Um, because well, I. Yeah, you, but we will find a good place and you stick with it, right? Yeah. <laughs> we went to Denny's um, a few. I think it was probably Sunday, and I hadn't been to a Denny's for probably a few years. I think the last time we went was with my mother-in-law and this Cuban-American fellow started promoting his movie to us because my mother-in-law is quite loud and opinionated um, and draws this kind of attention. Um, but we went to a Denny's, and the, you're right, the photographs are very pornographic of the food and the way that it's all laid out. And, and I think and cars, and, I mean, all sorts yeah. of marketing is pornographic, I think, to mm. a large extent, probably. Mm. But yeah, this anime porn thing just really didn't, um, didn't interest me. And it was interesting realizing that the, the thing that, I liked about Robotech was actually that it had been tuned very much in a World War Two style, um, you know, series of World War Two metaphors that the author had constructed through this redubbing. Yeah. Um, but no, it was a strange thing. I continued to explore the stuff, and I actually was online last night and had a chat with the Space Station Liberty fellow, which was the good podcast that I found was called Space Station Liberty, and he said that TalkShoe used to pay people for their shows. Yeah. Yeah, you'd have to. Have, you had to have pretty. Uh, you'd have to have a lot of people calling in to the yeah. seven hundred uh, number because they got uh, every time anybody used that uh, that, that number. Because uh, he was saying he was getting fifty dollars a month through that. Yeah, he must have really been pushing it. Yeah, the Robotech numbers are pretty good, actually. I mentioned Model Rail Radio to him, and he seemed to think that I was getting reasonable numbers with that. But the sense is the Robotech numbers are in the thousands. I mean, not yeah. not. You know, for well, five, all these markets out there. I mean, they're small, but you know, they're big and identifiable markets. Yeah. So this is the fascinating thing they had on the fellow who now runs Harmony Gold, which is the distributor of this Robotech stuff, and he basically fielded calls from the 
Do you remember in episode 17 where the laser <laughs> gun was used, but clearly the bullets would have to move backwards in order to fire forward? How can you explain this with modern ammunition technology? Th- that's the, wait a minute, that's the best goddamn accent I've ever heard, man. Is, <laughs> if, feel- if you, is that one you've developed over the years? I just, this is the first time. He feels well, when you listen to this, you're going to really enjoy it. It, it, <laughs> it was that was good. He fielded questions like yeah. this for two and a half hours, I and he actually same. had answers for them. Yes, he had the question <laughs> for the same. And he goes to these these conventions. This is the thing that I'm realizing is that there is a huge, well, not a huge, but I mean, there's a, 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 the order of thousands. Yeah. The RPG fellow made some serious money through the 80s and 90s and is now remaking that money again with the next generation. Have I told you my yo-yo uh, baron story? No. So when I first moved to the Bay Area, I had, um, I guess I'd been picked up by the artificial life community by that point. I mean, for a number of years, maybe four years, I had been pretty heavily shunned by the artificial life community, and they were saying, well, no wafers in artificial life. But after the Rushkov article, um, which basically was syndicated worldwide and did a wide variety of other things, um, I was welcomed into the artificial life community, and one of the people at, at the time was chairing one of the artificial life conferences said, you need to meet Ian Kitajima. And Ian Kitajima was a fellow who made his money from yo-yos. He um, realized that every eight years there would be a yo-yo craze. <laughs> so what he did, yeah. what he did was he warehoused yo-yos. He basically got the yo-yo market absolutely there. And then every eight years he would wheel out a yo-yo show that would travel around to all the schools in the U.S. and travel internationally. And he would sell off his yo-yos and he'd make his money and then he'd wait another eight years. So I met him during the yo-yo lull. And was he able to make enough money during that time to not work during the intervening Well, what he did in the intervening eight years was what he wanted to do. Well, okay, so I mean, he didn't need to work. He had enough to survive and do what he wanted to do. That's great. Oh, man. Smart guy. I envy him. I wish I could figure out a way to do that. Man. Yeah. So he was, uh, he was quite a character. But the thing that I worked with him on uh, was a handheld toy, um, which was a internet toy, like a Tamagotchi. This was going somewhere with regards to licensing, I think, or something like that. How do, oh, uh, what were we talking about? We were talking about nerds and patients. Yeah, I don't know where we were going with regards to this, but I wanted to, yeah. So anyway, Ian Kitajima was a fascinating fellow um, because, as with this fellow, he had learned that there was a natural cycle and you could ride through, um, you know, periods of down with the view that yeah. if you were very patient and could do these things, that, uh, you know... And eight payday. years was his cycle? Yes. Because that's an important... that. Eight years, that's interesting. I mean, because that's really what we mean. When you talk about generations, people think mm. of long period, 20 years or something. But no, generations are every, I think, I think that's what he's hit on. Eight years, eight to ten the years. It's about children as well. You don't want a circumstance where older brothers and sisters have the toy. You need to get to a point where there aren't any older brothers and sisters that have the toy, and the toys that are there have been used and broken. Yeah, right, yeah. They need to wait long enough for them to all end up in the trash. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. then here you show up again. Yeah. And I think this is the same philosophy with regards to these licenses and the role-playing games and all these kind of things, ah, is that they have a natural okay. cycle yeah. that these people follow. And just the... Um, 
the ability to deal with patients with these people that are clearly obsessed but are the the money makers so the description that this role-playing game fellow gave was that uh you know you, you sell a, a million units every 10 years and basically that keeps you it that keeps you happy till the next cycle and it just yeah. keeps on going like yeah. that uh, well, if you can we, figure that out it, it, yeah yeah but anyway so that was my experience with the yo-yo barony and kitajima unfortunately I had developed this handheld toy with him, uh, which he was marketing to Bandai, and we got to the point where we were getting the uh, prototypes made in um, China, and then he just decided that it was better for him to work for a venture capital fund than actually follow this thing through. Yeah. So I kept the IP and went on to do my merry little thing. He did get me a bit of work at Nokia, actually. He went on to work at Nokia briefly, um, working with some of their early social network stuff, and that paid for the engagement ring and various other things in my life at the time. Um, but no, he was an interesting character and exactly the same model that you, you know, you find a cycle and then you just work to it. Uh, anyway, so that was, that was my, uh, anime or the discussion. I was just interested in your connection with anime and your perspective. So have you, do you have any interest in anime at all or was this just a passing thing? I mean, I've I've watched a couple. I don't like reading it, but I, there are a couple of uh, you know video series that I've watched. Mm. I, I doubt I'll watch much more of it. <laughs> you know, yeah. my curiosity has been satisfied. Uh, yeah, yeah, it is a strange form, really, isn't it? It's something that. Uh... Well, it's Japanese, really. It, it, I don't think it really fits this culture in a lot of ways, or it's just quite. You know, it's well. Of course, that's all breaking down. That's the whole thing: is that culture isn't what it used to be. The fact mm. that anime is here uh, actually is saying something. As much as uh, we have transformed their psyche, they are doing the same thing to us. Very much so, actually. I spent a bit of time in uh, my local borders, and the anime section. Well, it's huge. I've, yeah. Yeah, it's huge. It's huge. And the role-playing game section is actually quite big as well. But the thing that captivated me, and I found actually quite surreal, it was one of these... I had this experience when I walk around bookstores. I did that recently with the Eckhart Tolle fellow as well when I when I discovered him, although I didn't end up purchasing his book because I was able to read within probably about 15 minutes enough for me to have a coherent discussion with you about yeah. him. Um, but uh, I found a book in the borders on the uh, special forces in Iraq, um, which you don't normally see a lot of. You really, are, and we've had this discussion before, completely immune to what the reality, what 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 the appearance is of Americans in Iraq and Afghanistan. I mean, what folks on the street see when they see American service people. Yeah. And I think it's psychologically, I found it really disturbing because it was just I. It really is more than. I mean, the Germans through the Second World War, when they were in, you know, France and the Netherlands and what have you, occasionally didn't carry around weaponry and occasionally went out and socialised with the locals. Obviously, I mean, there's quite a bit of fragmentising that yeah. went on. Um, and there is just the appearance. There appears to be nothing like that ah, through that's this. That's an interesting yeah. observation. Yeah. So you know, the whole green zone, the whole barricading yeah, right, and yeah. all this kind of stuff, yeah. but also. The weaponry is so phenomenally alien. As I was looking through, I just mm. got the sense that 
you really don't get a sense of World of, War Two was a different universe. It was. It was a completely it was a different, different universe. universe. Yeah. The so war- when we think of in terms of these ideas that we are exporting, mm-hmm. we really, I don't think, when we have the, even these kind of discussions, get a sense of the kind of militaristic reality that the, our empire presents when it is uh, on display in these countries. Yeah. yeah. And, and it was we some, wonder why they don't like us. <laughs> well, it's more than just, I think, um, psychologically, if you were, I mean, even my exposure to it, I actually put up a, a video review of the book because I'm doing another podcast with uh, our favorite communist listener, Jonathan Reinhardt, who continues to listen, um, was that if you are exposed to these images, even for a small period of time, they are genuinely disturbing and I think the long-term exposure to this, and also they had a small section associated with um, rounding up suspects, uh, which I think is probably a large part of what uh, certainly the special forces do. And the psychology associated with this kind of experience really oh, yeah. Yeah. very, very uneasy. So when we talk about uh, cultural exports, it is very curious. Oh, here's another interesting thing, though. I was doing model rail radio over the weekend, and we had a Tunisian caller hmm. who had discovered TalkShoe. And I'm not sure if you sh- you're aware of this, but Tunisia has only just opened up the Internet. Uh, no, I didn't know that. And they are really hungry for information. This fellow was fascinating. He, he tried to call in a couple of times and then stayed on the chat for a few minutes. Um, but it was really quite an amazing experience to get the sense that this is a person who has been completely isolated. Yeah. Isn't it great? See, that this that's the that was why what got me all started on this thing is way back when Skypecast was around. Mm. And that was so international. I mean, it was more, way more than half the people there were not Americans. And they were from Mm. all over the world, from every damn place you could imagine. And I used to talk to these people all the time, and it was just mind-boggling. You know, Mm. the people that I ran to. I talked to a guy, well, this wasn't even that long ago, who owned a a cyber cafe in Islamabad, Pakistan. Yeah, this is a fellow who you reference quite a bit. Yeah, Um. you know. I'm not sure, yeah, I'm not sure what number he... Oh, I have used. no idea. I don't even know if that's uh, in the archive oh, okay. yet. I mean, I may not have edited it. I don't know. Okay. But but it's just, you know, and, and, and I, I met such unlikely people, and they were so excited about it, too. That was the other thing, is especially from, part, you know, in Africa, in Asia, when people, you know, where it was really new, they were so excited, you know? Mm. Oh, God, mm. it was beautiful. Yeah, no, that's what we got from this Tunisian caller. My suspicion is that they may come to talk to you more and more. You may actually have the potential to speak through what you... Except you don't do it really through talk to you anymore, do you? Well, I'm there. I mean, I, yeah. I, what I do is I just play a recording in there. Ah, okay. You know, and, it's in, and I sort of check in once in a while. And I, I've had actually one or two conversations there in the last uh, two, three months. Mm. <laughs> you know. Mm. Mostly I just do it. Uh, just so that they know I'm here and let me feed my stuff to iTunes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah, we had it actually, we had a surprising experience at the end. I, I turn it over to what we call the post show, and we actually had a fellow come in and start, I leave the call, but they yeah. don't have a means of um, 
passing on the administrative rights to anyone else. So we had a fellow come in towards the end of the post show and just start broadcasting this strange kind of religious <laughs> stuff and laughing. <laughs> so he was yeah. basically a heckler of the worst kind. Yeah, and since you weren't there, uh, no, I couldn't could do anything. Do anything. Yeah. In fact, ironically, talk she really heavily broke over that show, and I was only there for probably about a quarter of it, trying to get back in and various crashes. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so yeah, that was the. So the second topic I have for this evening is the idea of dumbening, um, which comes, well, it's a term that comes from the Simpsons, the early Simpsons, not the later (laughs) Simpsons, but it's the idea that you actually become more stupid through a variety of different things. And you call that dumbening? Dumbening. (laughs) That's a great word. (laughs) Dumbening. So it's a term that I've used in general English, and people seem to understand what it means. Dominating of America. Exactly, (laughs) exactly. But it's it's something that I do actually think about, because I think there is a real phenomena of people, I don't know, it's, I'm I'm concerned. It's not dumb, it's unconscious. Mm, that's well. That's that's true. It's it's a it's a, a well. You, mean, it's not, poor maybe, you can be really intelligent and still be dumb. True. True. <laughs> I guess the effect is the degradation of um, intelligence, or you might describe enlightenment, through a variety of factors. The thing that has always concerned me is menial work, because through my paid career, yeah. I've had to take a variety of jobs that have just been basically paid the bills. Yeah. And it's something that I've always tried to offset that as much as possible through things such as this discussion, academic writing yeah. and a variety of other things. But I do have a concern that there are these untouchable intellectuals who maybe it's just due to their bounces alone, but who maintain this kind of intellectual utopia which enables them to stay intellectually coherent, whereas well, you know, my my great concern is that uh, the dumbing is is setting in um, on a on a daily basis with regards to a lot of the stuff that I have to do, um, and it's something it's a phenomenon which I've thought about a lot in terms of just keeping my level of mental activity. It was funny I was talking to my grandmother recently, who's still alive in Australia, and she was describing the. How old is she? She's eighty nine. <clears throat> okay, is she in good health? She aside from she mentally is in very good oh, health. Yeah. Right. And she was describing the demise of my grandfather and saying he couldn't hold a conversation anymore. It was yeah. probably a good thing, you know, yeah. these okay. kind of... Yeah, good. Oh, she's so, sharp. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Um, my real concern is that she will now be living um, alone, and I think her children, aside from my mother and maybe a couple of the others who occasionally drop in, really she will be living very much alone. And she had a sister who lived Does to a similar... Does she have a computer? She does, but then again, she, she's on email and she's on Facebook and various things. I she mean, needs she, an iPad. Yeah, I think um, <laughs> that may she... actually be, a, particularly if the new ones come out with camera. Yeah, yeah. That may actually be a really good point, Harry. Yeah. Um, but she, you know, what I'm thinking is every child ought to be given a, a, a child-proof uh, <laughs> iPad at the age of about three months. Mm. And they can yeah. chew on it and drool on it and pee on it and do anything and can't hurt it. And uh, just let them have it and go at it. <laughs> yeah. I think the my only concern with that is that there would need to be... I don't know, it's interesting. This whole discussion associated with whether people should be the, um, the master of the machine or subservient to the software that the machine has on it has been a, something that I've... I mean, I spoke yeah. at... NYU in 2000 on this very topic and really riled up the 
relatively conservative, funnily enough, NYU students. They seemed to think that programming was done by people in India and that was the way it was to stay. And the idea that you would pass it on to children seemed to be... But I'm very much of the, um, you know, children should be allowed to not only just play with technology, but also develop and explore technology yeah, in a fundamental sense. Um, and I think maybe this paradigm has shifted, but the idea well, of I don't want to restrict them to an iPad. I just want to yeah. give them that as a yeah. base to start with. Mm. Yeah, no, they should have a tower under their desk by the time they're four or five, probably. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, give them a couple of years. Yeah. <laughs> when I was at university, I wrote for the local university rag, and I remember writing a long article critiquing the... I mean, the Australia has a real um, Luddite kind of bent to it with regard to these kind of things. And there were a series of newspaper and even television, well, newspaper articles and television shows associated with how easy it was for children to get access to pornography through the internet. <laughs> yes, of course it is. That's Which, one of the good things about it. <laughs> and get, and they'll I, be over that by the time they're 14. Yes, they exactly. No get more it interest out of in it. Yeah, right. yeah. So, and I wrote a, a, a scale, not even a scaling critique, but an analysis of through the kinds of modes that children would use to explore the internet, how difficult it would be for them to not only get access to the kind of pornography that they were describing, but also that if they were sufficiently miscreant, they probably would get access to considerably more interesting and destructive material earlier, which is my premise of the mushroom boy, the idea that if children are, you know, are um, intellectually aware that they're probably considerably more capable than the, you know, the greatest minds of Al Qaeda and uh, oh, you know yes. CIA yeah. together. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, yeah then we shouldn't live in fear of our children. Um, but uh, well, I see, th that depends on. Well, most parents should live in fear of their children because <laughs> if their parent, if they, if they knew what their parents were doing to them, they would murder them in the night. Yeah. You know? If you've raised your children properly, you don't have anything to worry about. I think. Yes. Yes. I think. Um, yeah, so returning to this idea of dumbening, this is something that I... You know, I even like the word endumbening. <laughs> I mean, if we're going to get stupid. Disendumbening. The yeah. disendumbening, there you go. <laughs> and so it decreases. <laughs> oh, man. But yes, it, it is a, I think it's quite... A, I mean, I find this... I, I mean, for example, when I go over to my in-laws or when my in-laws come here and they watch a lot of television, I feel that has a... Has Why a is there a television in your house for them to watch? Well, because we watch... I tried to convert the father-in-law to Netflix. In fact, yeah. this is another interesting topic because yeah. we've been... Netflix has this Comedy Central thing yeah. with 240 stand-up comedians. <laughs> it's, like... it's about one in 40 are watchable. We, we play this comedian roulette game yeah. where basically we try to find a comedian and we watch it, and most of them, after two minutes, it's just like they're not funny <laughs> so like what's the purpose of this i don't know whether we're just not the mar i mean well, see, it's the same as my podcast i don't edit them i yeah. just put them up there if there's something in there anybody likes cool and if not fuck them yeah come on in folks open mic you know yeah I, I take the, I guess, the robotech approach and edit it down to something that's intelligible. But I do, it does strike me that there seems to be a lot of these, um, 
I guess, opiate-like or um, subduing cultural components, which uh, I don't know how one... I mean, you're right, exactly what we're doing is probably acting against that in some way, although some folk consider what we're doing banal in and of itself, so <laughs> who, who knows? Who, who knows cares? What's Fuck them if they think that. Yeah, and skippy. <laughs> so, yeah, I guess, I guess my view is that you need... the. The the anti the disendumbing is in fact <laughs> anti disendumbing. Oh no, I don't even believe you said that. <laughs> oh, it's a one up. By the end of the show, we will have a, a no. A I don't. Even, we will have a new world's longest word. <laughs> yeah, anti disendumbing. Um, the uh, just keeping these kind of intellectual things, and I think that's probably what people like my grandmother have done as well. That they just maintain. I mean, my grandmother reads. Um, reads very widely and constantly gets new stuff through. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's pr- there are probably a number of ways that one can keep active. Uh, well, I think, cost- yeah, that's the question. Is that why is that? I can't imagine life not being that way. Mm. You know, I mean, if if I found, yeah, but there aren't many. It may just be some genetic thing. Some people just do that. And other people, it seems that most people just abhor the idea of reading and learning and hearing new ideas. I mean, they they actually have a sort of phobic reaction to that. That's why they have TV. It, it, it quells all those disturbing ideas that are floating around in their head. And, you know, and they can turn on the TV and all of that goes away. And you just, you know, it's wonderful. Yeah. This this flows very neatly into my final topic before we open it up and we take another hour, and that is the <laughs> the idea. This idea of the language monkey is something that I've been thinking about quite a bit because when I interact with a, a portion of the population, particularly in this country, I consider that there are actually people out there that are sub language. Sub well, um, well. I'm, tell me what you mean. I'm not quite sure what you mean by that. I think that particularly when you talk or even interact with people that are unable to even have basic forms of expression in terms of well, who language. Who the hell are you talking to? Well, for example, I mean, I, I, I just have these experiences occasionally where I realize that there, there are people that are clearly, you know, clearly embedded in their language. But I think there is also a group of people that are sub-language. Aren't they, even embedded in their language. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, well, I just, it strikes me that you... Can you give me an example? I, I mean, I'm really sort of... So, for, for example, the it's typically in service, in points of service, where you're interacting with people that do things like assemble sandwiches or... Yeah, yeah you're at the subway. Or, these kind of yeah. things exactly yeah. and you just get a sense that they for example the subway is um let me see i, I can normally do my order verbatim but the, the no, na- listen listen i i think i already have an answer for this mm-hmm. <laughs> you know you're seeing them when they are that way but that isn't all there is to them i understand that but oh, okay. i guess my sense is that i have interactions with people who work at subway as well who are clearly uh students clearly have some interest in language and clearly are just doing this to make ends meet. I understand that. Really? Yes. Okay. You must have better class of subway where you're from. (laughs) Well, yeah, I think the, and the subway is uh, the easiest, but also 
you occasionally find people that are like coming to your door to collect things or these kind of things. I remember when I first moved to this country, there was a fellow who um, came to the door one day who nominally was a high school student who really couldn't string words together. And I actually paused and tried to have a conversation with him. And then he pointed inside at the piggy bank and said, love money. Yeah. And that basically the level and i think there there is a population and i don't just think it's in the u.s but i think the yeah. u.s education well, certain yeah i i think it's clear that i think that's a tiny percentage of people that are operating oh, the no. level you're talking about oh no i think it's la- you God, you're telling me-, me i found someone who's more cynical about humans than me i, I don't believe it i yeah. don't believe i don't normally, it. i don't normally say it out loud but no i really because <laughs> i was thinking about this that what you describe with regards to the language monkey is at least someone with a a high school or maybe even an early college level education. Oh, no, no, no. That's not at all what I'm talking about by a language monkey. I, I, what I mean by a language monkey is the 99% of human beings who are in, who are literally entranced by the story in their head. But I don't t- think there are people that even have a story in their head, Harry. Oh, I think they do. I, I think you don't. I think you may not see it, and it may not be coherent, and it may not be a story that makes any sense to you. But uh, they clearly have a story in their head. But it's just, it's not very articulate. They may not be able to articulate the story either. So you gave an example, I think, with your conversation with Jesse, associated with, uh, I can't think whether you use the term feral children, but basically children that have had no contact with with adults or language and their way in which they then uh, reintegrate with society and the problem. Would you view that they are sublanguage. Oh, absolutely. Sure, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I agree with you that there's a percentage of, of people who are, in fact, sublanguage are just so low that it's not having much impact. But, see, I think, in some sense, dogs and cats have uh, have a linguistic environment, too. It's, oh, very it's much not, so. Oh, yes. Not at without, all like it's, ours. So, yes. so I, I wouldn't say they're sublanguage. I just say that they're... They're at a at such a level that um, that I'm not I don't have much interest in them basically as mm. being, as being because I, I think there's probably some physical pathology involved in that. Well, I would I you I, see, but once I don't you, think once, that's bad programming. I think that's that's bad hardware. Yeah, but once you start allowing the notion of there being people that are sub language, yeah. you see, this is the thing that interests me about the notion that. The kind, I mean, the kind of people that you're describing in terms of um, having a, a, an internal narrative, particularly with regards to things like religion and well, just everything, uh, their whole life story, who I am, and what, yeah. what I, who I know, what I do, yeah. who, I, you know, all that stuff. Yeah, yeah. They still tend to be of a caliber of person that has at least some indication of coherent language as a as a oh yeah well most people do yes not probably 98 percent or 99 percent of humans i think uh you know can order a cup of coffee at a restaurant if they're in that culture Mm. you know most people can do that The, the people who can't are seriously deficient it's an interesting thing because i guess I guess the things that I observe, particularly um, particularly in this country, but I've also experienced elsewhere, I've experienced it in Australia and Malaysia and, and the UK in part, is that there is 
once you allow this notion that there are people that exist on a kind of sublinguistic level and they're able to live quite coherent lives, I mean, maybe yeah. not, you know, reading and what have you. No, but they but at go least to work and to come home and watch TV they, and punch well, the maybe, wife goodnight, you know, yeah. Whatever, you know, <laughs> yeah. or, you know, have, have multiple families or all this kind of stuff. Yeah. I think the, the nature, there begs the question whether this divide between sublinguistic people and linguistic people means that we all have elements of sublinguistic in us, I mean, some of us might repress it through... Well, but there are things that my nervous system does that has no uh, connection with the language machine. The language machine is one function Mm. in the cortex. Uh, When Mm. I'm uh, playing music, uh, that's a whole different uh, circuit that's that's going on that has very little, if anything, to do with the language machine. Mm. Sexuality is both, perhaps? Sexuality? Mm Mm-hmm. Um, well, that's what we share with the mosquitoes and the reptiles. That's real low brain stuff. <laughs> that's, that's, yeah. I guess, my point, really. Yeah. But, yeah, we got all that stuff. Yeah, that's my, we got our, that's why I keep talking about, you know, that I got this monkey I have to contend with. Not only mm. do I have to contend with its operating system, you know, and all that, but I got this monkey that's got its idea of what it thinks is fun. Mm. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so I guess this is exactly the description that I'm trying to assert with regards to the notion of, of sub-language, that yeah. in fact, you, the, the characteristics that we associate in appearance with regards to humans has got nothing to do with um, oh, yeah. the kind of descriptions that are... Well, that's why I, I think the dis- that's why I don't think of myself as a human anymore because that's just mm. a description of a biological organism, which is fine, but I'm that's the hardware. I am the software. Mm. And as as we've talked about previously, I, ironically, this is most apparent when I go to a new dentist. But uh, when I am engaged in medical, people in this country find it fascinating when they get <laughs> to me um, in terms of the various reconstructive elements of me. Um, but no, I, I certainly don't feel um, uh, human as a as a human would, I guess, in some in some sense. But I actually have physical things that um, can point to that. Yeah. Uh, uh, no, my I don't have any physical things. It's just my mind that <laughs> that is too far off the, mm. the beam. <laughs> yeah, I guess my idea with regards to this sublinguistic component is just that it. Um, I think it is probably I would say close ten, maybe even twenty percent of the population probably. Really. See, I, well, I think we're talking about two different things. I think we all have that. Mm. You know, I don't think that's something unique. I, I agree. Do. I agree. It's, it's, it's a system that's about, underlying yeah. the yeah, and that what I'm saying is that there is no higher order language associated with the kind of narrative that you describe well, with the I language. Just, I just find that hard to believe. Like I said, I can imagine that in maybe one, one or a half a percent or something mm. like that. Twenty percent. I mean, I think there are people. Well, there's another issue here too. I mean, there's also. You know, I keep you fired me say that fifty percent of the people in the world are below average intelligence. Definitely. You know, and that's just the old bell curve. There are a lot of people who are just stupid. Yeah. You know, but so there's also you talk twenty percent. Yeah. You know, but irrespective of what one might mark as intelligence, there is a. I mean, if you are never you're saying that things. you're saying twenty percent of people, I could come up and ask them what time it is, and they'd go. Uh, duh, uh, duh. <laughs> to me, or they wouldn't be able to give me an answer to that because they don't understand language. Is that what you're uh, suggesting? 
This is the experience of Barbara Really? Oh, Jesus Christ, i got to come hang out with you sometime. I want to see these. My things. wife enjoys this. No, my wife enjoys this phenomenally because I don't have any... You see, you probably have an aversion to approaching people. Well, well that's the thing. Is, see, I don't I have, have anything to do with those humans. Exactly. That's exactly <laughs> Yeah, I avoid that's them exactly at all costs. Yeah. So what you actually have is a very romantic view associated... <laughs> this is, this is <laughs> no, 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 don't tell me this. I don't want to hear this. You have a very romantic... <laughs> I'm a romantic. Based on your own perception, what you're doing is mapping the worst aspects of your own existence onto the rest of the population and not actually exploring the remainder. Okay, and- I give up. <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm gonna change my life. Damn. Well, I think you should. I mean, the nature of your life is very much. I mean, the, the experiences that you have, uh, you know, in the Starbucks and the newspaper and these kind of things are very. You have you, you see you you talk about me living in a cloistered environment. I think you've actually cre- created. Oh, well, I've, oh, I have. I, I I own it. Yeah, I said I, I I can't really speak about anything but South Californians, and mm. I have as little to do as I can with most humans. Mm. I decided years ago it was unproductive to hang around those people. Mm. You, know? you see, my, my this 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 revelation came to me. My wife has um, mainly because she's from Southern California, a romantic attachment to the. El Pollo Loco food chain. Uh, <laughs> I, do. I like some of their stuff. Man. I know. I'm sure you do. Yes. You, you, you represent, Heron. You represent. And we go to the same place, and then whenever I order the food, my wife has now gotten to the point where she'll allow me to order the first three things, and then the people get so completely confused with the circumstances yeah. that she then has to take over. <laughs> and I guess there's a part of this experience which is very much to do with uh, my accent, perhaps, and my interaction with people. But I do think if people don't hear exactly what they want to hear in terms of language, they immediately cannot respond in any coherent form. No, you have to be, yeah, in those situations, yeah, you have to be very careful about what you're saying. <laughs> exactly. And I guess that my view there is, whilst, well, these people may not be... But see, now such- you're talking about people who speak English as a second language. That's, that's, that's just not fair. Well, that's interest. That's an interesting point because um, certainly the people who um, I would think that they well, they're all. I would think they're probably at least second generation American. Well, the ones that well, there's only two El Pollo Locos that I go to, and in those, <laughs> the people I speak to actually speak with accents. Yeah. So, the people so I that's not my only experience. So well, I, you know. certainly when we go into dining hall, but see, I don't expect a, a a conversation on epistemology when I go in there. I just want a fucking burrito with you know lots of extra tomato in it. <laughs> yeah, I can't get that far. That's the problem. <laughs> I'm at a reordering point by this point. In fact, the the greatest irony is doing this in drive through because we always come oh, around no, to the window. No, no, you got to go inside if you want yeah. if you want to get it right uh, at, at El yeah. Pollo Loco. Yeah, my wife has <laughs> unless you want something off the menu. That's the thing is, as long as you you just want something off the menu, and you, you're the okay. Menu. Oh well, I haven't had any. Well, I don't know because I never order off the menu. I always yeah. want it my way, you know. Yeah. <laughs> but I guess my experience is because I do and. Yeah, it's a funny thing, because certainly living here, I've become more conservative with regards to just approaching people and talking to them. But when I used to come here or even lived here uh, briefly, I would um, I would certainly go up to most people and try to have not epistemological conversations, but at least interactive conversations. Well, with what purpose in mind? Um, 
with the sense that I actually got some really interesting conversations back in nearly a majority of the cases. Uh-huh. And, okay, and what do you, in what kind you see, of conversation, I mean, how would you, how would you start, would you just walk up and say, nice day, isn't it? <laughs> well, in some cases, yes. Or in some cases, particularly because I had a cat allergy that I was very sensitive. Ironically, we now live with five of the creatures. But I could tell whether people own cats. Unless ah, you ah, I smell you well. have a cat. You've got to appreciate as well that <laughs> I have a good a way really, to start a conversation. <laughs> I really have a good sense of smell, and I can also identify, a, which is completely perverse and in no way, <laughs> after your leg-twitching discussion, um, I can identify American fragrances very quickly, so I know immediately, you know, which women shop at oh, Victoria's Secret. By the way, have stuff. you seen the movie Perfume? Have we talked about that? I think I, I'm... When did it come out? Oh, I don't know. It was a few years ago. I think. Yeah, I think if it's the one that's associated with Musk and various other things, then I think I have well, seen it. Well, about the guy who, who was the born, uh, the, you, if you would have seen it, you'd remember the opening scene of the birth of the guy. No, I, don't, I haven't seen <laughs> it. Then you though. haven't seen it. I highly recommend this. Okay. It's called yeah. Perfume, the yes. story of a murderer. <laughs> Okay, it's about that's a good... uh, 17th or maybe 18th century France and the perfume industry. Okay. Anyway, so, yes, I guess back in the day I used to... And the main thing was because I lived alone. I mean, when I lived in the Bay Area, my life was pretty well focused with these startups, the lawyers, these kind of things. I'm, I'm large. I mean, I'm tall. And I'm relatively, I guess, scary in terms of when I interact with people. So I think to lose when I would walk up to people on the street and talk oh, okay. to them. Okay, yeah, yeah, sure. Uh, yeah, you're and all- big and scary. That's not a bad start. <laughs> it can only go downhill from there. It can only go up. You know? So um, and I would have a number of techniques I knew because I'm also very acutely aware of uh, people's mannerisms and also the kind of body language element. So I would be able to typically strike up good conversations with a lot of people when I met them initially. Yeah, yeah. You start off. Yeah, you have to have a good intro, don't you? Well, the accent is a good intro. The accent is a good intro because Ah, basically you're allowed to be slightly. Ah, that's right. That's right. You can say almost anything and get away with it. He's a fucking Aussie. People don't even know that. They don't know no, where no, he's just a foreigner. That's all they exactly. know. He doesn't know what's going on exactly. here. Yeah. <laughs> and um, when I traveled by train, I used to utilize it more than anything. In fact, ironically, but I'm my... sorry to interrupt, you know, but you've just given me this whole idea is I need to develop an accent. <laughs> you have a slight accent, Heron. Your accent oh, is. Everybody's your ac- got an accent. I've got no, no, but your, accent. your accent is slightly manufactured, and you've, ind- you've indicated that in the past that yeah. your accent. You spent a bit of time cultivating your accent through well, public speaking. Well, yeah, clear. And plus, I created a phonetic alphabet. Jesus, mm. if you create a phonetic alphabet, you got to know what sounds you're making. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. Yeah, but it, uh, the the but point I'm talking about. I need a foreign accent so that I yeah. can just go up and talk to anybody anytime, and yeah. uh, and I'll have a much better intro than coming up with my arrogant asshole <laughs> voice. You know. Well, as I was able to mimic American nerds, you may be able to mimic nerds in other countries, yes, and that yeah, well, that'd even be better. Well, listen, let's let that go for now. <laughs> the only time where I didn't have a lot of success, although I still it reduced down to about twenty percent, was when I was in New York, and it was really all of New York. It was New York State as well as New York City, and New Yorkers, as the state goes, are and maybe even slightly up into Boston. But I had a very interesting experience on a train in New York where no one in the carriage 
would interact with me. In fact, they started kind of clutching themselves like I was going to mug <laughs> or something. And I realized then that this only worked through a majority of the U.S. And when I was in New York State, I had to be more careful about yeah. these kind of interesting. Uh, Although I did get some interesting conversations out through there. Well, once you realize that, then you can yeah. alter Adapted. your behavior. <laughs> yeah, appropriate. But the thing that struck me in particular about this country, because I, I, in 2000, I only traveled by train. I, I flew for about four months solidly in 99, and it really wrecked me. Aside from having my luggage stolen and various other things, um, I was just completely wrecked when I got back to Australia, and I swore that I wouldn't fly for 2000, and I didn't, actually. So whenever I had meetings or whatever, I'd travel by train. And in oh, traveling by train across fun. the U.S., yeah. oh, oh, unbelievable. Yeah. unbelievable. Yeah, a couple of days, what, three days or so, or what? Yeah, two and a half days. Two and a half days and yeah. nothing to do. Well, except to talk to <laughs> Except to play, yeah, right. Which yeah. is what I did. And yeah. you'd come out for meals, and sometimes I'd you know, travel in the seats, and then I'd go back to sleep or what have you. And no, it was a real luxury, but yeah. also... It gave a really strong sense that, irrespective of what I've said associated with, with the group that are sub, um, sub-linguistic, <laughs> the, there is a, everyone has a story to tell if they can enunciate it. <laughs> They're at least lingual. They can yeah, tell their yeah. story. <laughs> and the thing that I found fascinating was the kind of folk that were traveling by train could afford, because it was slightly more expensive than flying. This ah, is the interesting thing. Oh, that's even better. Yeah, you got a good group of people. choice yeah. to travel by train oh, yeah. and yeah, yeah. And so even gotta... in doing that realization, they weren't packing themselves into a Greyhound bus or traveling no, by no, car. No, no, they, man, had... they were having fun, relaxing. <laughs> Watching the world go by. And a good conversation was part of that experience. Yeah. Oh, that, then... maybe I'll do that. That sounds like fun. Yeah. I, no, I, I'm, I seriously think, no, I mean. Yeah, I just, just go to New York and turn around and come back. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> around New York, New York. Day, get back on the train and, yeah, yeah easy, easy. And, I mean, if you've How got much a would it cost to go to New York on a train? So it oh, costs... that's expensive, though. It's more expensive than flying, yeah, of course. Yeah, no, that's the truth. So to get from, I'm taking a train from uh, Emeryville in California to Reno as part of this trip with my brother. In fact, that gets me back to Reno to fly back to uh, Vegas. And that's costing me $93 for six hours. Mm-hmm. And my feeling is that's, that's probably, about, you're paying about whatever, Fifteen dollars an hour yeah. for for train travel. So to cross the cheaper actually the therapist. Right. <laughs> very, yeah, no, very true, very true. Um, but obviously, I've been doing mobile world radio and these kind of things. I need to keep my train chops alive on something. So um, no, I'm actually looking forward to that part. And it's a journey that I've taken maybe three or four times through 2000. Although I used to go to the other coast basically, um, and. Uh, I went up to Boston through Canada. I've never done the Southern uh, Rail. I've done the one that goes through uh, from LA through to uh, San Antonio, Texas, and then goes up through St. Louis up to Chicago. Yeah. And that's a very interesting trip as well. And just the, but I've never done any of the ones that are kind of southeastern. You know, uh, you've inspired me to to maybe put that on my list of things to do. I would thoroughly in my life. It. Yeah, yeah. Other, I don't need a destination. Shit, just get on the train for a exactly. couple of weeks. Yeah, it sounds like fun. Yeah, and the other thing that's uh, when I even in two thousand I was able when I had a do sleeper, you have internet on the on the no, this is the point. Yeah, Even in 2000, yeah. I was able to... I didn't have the internet on the train, but now you would. Now yeah. you would get the internet yeah. on the train. But I was able to do conference calls with Australia and this fellow who was in Hawaii and Kitajima and New York and yeah. Chicago while I was traveling from the sleeper. So I'd have my laptop, I'd have That's my cell phone. I and I'd, yeah, I'm, exactly. I'm set. Man. You'd have your iPhone, you'd be set. Exactly. Yeah. 
So no, I, I have very strong romantic memories of that as just a way of, of getting around. And also I did a lot of work on the train, as you do. Sure. You know, when well, I was you can do anything you want. That's I've, the beauty I've, of I've, it. And in terms of productive and refreshed, and I mean, the, the rocking motion for sleeping and mm. things, I mean, I typically get sleepers. The one time I didn't get a sleeper was my $400 night hotel stay in Chicago, which was a bit of a nightmare. But I think basically getting a sleeper um, is, well, what happens is typically you can either go and sit in the seats or when you go to meals, well, you, can you, get, you just Can't you just get a room? Yes, you can. In fact, that's what I did that's on one small trip. room. It just needs to no, be a like very a three small star, It's like a three-and-a-half-star hotel. It's a, actually a very good room. Yeah. Uh, small. I mean, you know, right? I mean, it's... It's got a, it's got a double bed plus walk-around oh, plus a shower yeah. oh, okay. and toilet. Right. So you can, yeah. you can get what they call a sleeper, which is just a single bunk bed, and then you've got access to a shower, a communal shower and toilet. Or you can get this room, which they call first class, which I got on one time. And that you have literally, it's like a hotel, a small yeah. hotel, yeah. but it was larger than the hotel room I had in Chicago for four hundred dollars. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. And you can stand. It was absolutely phenomenal. It was a part of my life which I think uh, was amazing in terms of just and how meeting. Was the food. I bet the food was pretty good. Oh Probably my expensive goodness! I had the best. Though, wasn't it? No, no, no. It wasn't actually. I came with the ticket price. I think when you get the two sleepers, I had the best steak ever going through the Arizona desert. It was melt in the mouth steak, small portion. A little bit of mashed potato, perfectly mashed. They have amazing food. Well, they had amazing food in 2000. Yeah, yeah, I mean, obviously, yeah. you know, there was, yeah. you know, White Castle downstairs and various other concoctions. But if you actually ate in the um, in the diner, you would get amazing food. Amazing. I mean, it, uh, yeah, I, it, it was a very civilized way to travel in 2000. Yeah, it sounds I mean, great. Well, it sounds like a civilized way to travel right now. Well, I'm interested in seeing how it is now. I mean, it's compare and contrast. I'm not taking a sleeper, but I'm interested in seeing whether it's, uh, it's comfortable now. Well, again, it's the idea. Yeah, I mean, it's, that's, this is a whole different thing than getting on a plane and going to New York for a meeting at 3 o'clock tomorrow afternoon. Mm. <laughs> you know, well, what is, I did was when it was. Yourself. Yeah, when it was a Monday morning morning meeting i would take the weekend over and when it was a friday meeting i would plan my calls and avoided it and then took the week through yeah um and i knew people i knew people in both boston and new york which also helped which meant that i had people to at least have a meal with or stay with if yeah. need be yeah um but no it was just it was a complete luxury and it, when i in stark contrast to every flying experience that oh, i've yeah. had in this yeah. country well, flying is about just is about the destination. Yeah, you just put up, you know, with the fucking seat. Yeah, yeah. yeah flying is awful. Yeah, yeah. I'm wondering whether it's a little bit to... like a dentist chair, actually. Well, now you get X-rayed and and <laughs> yeah, down. The whole and thing is like a, going to the dentist. <laughs> it's not. It's the same experience exactly. Ay ay ay, So anyway, here this this now we've left the scripted part of my. Uh, my discussion, so it's open. Yeah. What what else would you like to talk about? So, are you using a laptop mic, the built-in mic? No, I'm using a USB uh, headset a USB or uh, or a mic. We've, we've had this discussion. I've got I, headphones on. I don't put anything okay. close to my mouth. I, it's just interesting because uh, your mic, I can hear every sound in your house, <laughs> and Very usually. 
um, headsets don't pick up a lot of it. But of course, it's quiet there, so you know it, yeah. th- that's probably why it picks up. Everything. My laptop—that's why I say my laptop mic picks up everything, which makes <laughs> it totally useless anywhere except here. And it's quite good when I'm in a quiet room, like where you are. <laughs> you know, it works really good. Mm. But um, well, anyway, never mind. Yes, it is a it is a phenomena. I think um, we've talked a little bit about my my prehistory with speech therapy, but I really don't like having anything close to my mouth. Yeah. Um, even I mean, I use the headphones on my um, iPhone, uh, which has the speaker, but I always turn it away from my mouth or just keep it uh, away from it. And I do prefer to have. A mic that's well, it's relatively picks up a lot. The only difficulty. Wait a minute, is I don't understand what you were saying about the iPhone because you're talking about that little mic that's built into the cord. <laughs> yeah, and that and that disturbs you. Yeah. Oh, really? Okay. All right. Yeah, I think the the nature of my voice and also the kind of creation of putting bits. They would literally stick bits of paper to my face. Uh, and these kind of things, I just, I, ah, it really irritates okay. me. Yeah, yeah, so, I got it, yeah. Uh, I don't want to have deep a, programming here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Years of being in a darkened room in the bottom of a hospital that was eventually imploded. When it was imploded, they thought it was going to be a nice day out for families and it killed a little girl, the implosion. The block of cement, um, in fact, it was, it was both steel and cement flew a quarter of a mile before it impacted in the little girl. Wow. Uh, in fact, it, it hit her head and basically, you know, it was just horrible. Um, but no, the hospital, in fact, that was the same hospital that, where they removed my toe when I was 10, maybe 12. Um, and yeah, so I always, yeah, it was a hospital that I knew very well, Royal Canberra Hospital, for folks who know anything about Australia or Canberra. Um, and yeah, I, I had speech therapy there for probably, I don't know how many years, but it was just a complete nightmare saying baby, bobby, bottle, baby, bobby, bottle. Do you think it and made that, any difference? Do you think it was a waste of time or do you think it actually... It made me very conscious of my speech and it made me realize I literally feel air move around my face. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. it made me very, very conscious of the way that ah, I spoke. yeah, of course it would, wouldn't it? <laughs> yes. So and, and like do a, you think that's a good thing or a bad thing? I think it's a... Mm, or it's maybe both. Actually, listen to how silly I am. Falling for my own <laughs> bullshit is either or, you know? <laughs> of course, it's both and. <laughs> I think very few people are taught to speak. And being taught to... No, of to course sp- not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The other thing is that I had a bone graft when I was 15, and I had to reteach myself to speak. But mm. having had the experiences that I'd had previously, ah, I knew the steps that I needed to do. to do it, yeah. Yeah. Um, but no, I wouldn't. It, it yeah, see, re- I think that's part of a fundamental connection that you and I have is this <laughs> is this connection to language. I guess it's, so. it's slightly different. I mean, it's clearly different. You, you know, your history and mine are, are different, but we both have this deep connection to language. Mm. Most people mm. are just completely oblivious to language. Mm. It's like to a fish to water. Mm. Again, reiterating perhaps some of my points. Um, but I think the thing that speech therapy really conveyed to me was that um, it was a privilege to be able to speak. I mean, that was the that was mm. the the mentality that, and certainly I um, I was I don't know not even a telephone counsellor, but I was someone who there was a cleft palate association in Australia that I 
I would occasionally get calls from kids associated with their cleft palates and how they dealt with it and mm. all this kind of stuff. Um, and it made me very aware that the kind of things that my parents put me through quite intentionally were really designed to eliminate a lot of the problems that other kids that had cleft palates you had. were seeing, yeah. 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 Um, particularly with regards to um, just just punctuated speech. The I mean, ability just, to uh, speak, yeah, and not sound, yeah, yeah. yeah. And the, the funny thing is... Yeah, because example, you, you have no... So you're, you're saying if it hadn't been for that, you wouldn't, you wouldn't speak like you do today, I, I suppose. The other because interesting... Speaking, thing, there's no hint of any kind of impairment. Yeah. Aside from my accent. Well, um, well yeah, and you're in this kind of stupid shit you say. But aside from all that, your, the your articulation thing. is uh, Yeah, perfect. because my projected voice is so great. When I'm in a restaurant, for example, I will cover my mouth because it's, it's loud. Oh, because and my wife not. can't understand me when I cover my mouth. She'll say, move your hands away from me. My mother does this as well because so much of my speech is really focused energy that comes through a very thin channel of air, which is exactly why I don't put a microphone in front of it. Oh, okay. And I think and you that's can't what... speak any other way? No, of course not. In fact, I can't really whisper. That's another thing that I you find can't really... like whisper? Oh, fascinating. Is that the... <laughs> really? Yeah. And of course you've tried. Yeah. Well, you know, I want to... It's, it's, you know, well... I wish we... Now, here's a case. Here's a case... <laughs> Where being in, in each other's physical presence and squish would be really interesting. Because I'd love to sit down at a table with you and experiment with all this stuff. Yes, I don't know. I mean, well, yeah. no, I'm saying I, there's no way it, it could be done uh, in yeah. the Matrix. This is, this is one of the few cases where I actually want to be in the same room with you. <laughs> you know, because. Very good, This Aaron. is interesting. Very good. Okay, go on. Yep. So I guess that's my aversion to, and I'm very sensitive associated with things like microphones in particular, because I can very easily, I mean, regular old style telephones, I always used to put the telephone under my chin mm -hmm. um, and these kind of things, because really... It's too and much. Uh, otherwise, you're blasting them out, right? So when I, the university I went to had a very large library and there was literally a football field and I could be walking at one end of the football field and get the echo back of my voice on the library yeah so it really is free and I have a friend who's um this is the fellow who I described with regards to Afghanistan and various other things and he's six foot six I think and he has a similar he has even louder but I mean he has um kind of like uh midwestern nasal elements to his voice as well so it's slightly higher pitched and um projects as well so i think there's a combination of factors i mean my size my lung capacity these kind of things yeah. but i'm very sensitive that my voice is and i can literally cut my hands and i can feel the the lack of air vibration and then as i get very close to the voice yeah. it really is very focused yeah and that came from years of speech therapy mm. um and i think in part it's a deformation of the way most people speak but it was to do with very much that they didn't want any nasal element in my speaking. So, for example, I'm now pinching my nose, yeah. but it's still relevant. I mean, you might be able to hear a slight nasal. Yeah, I can hear it. Yeah. No, I can hear not it. as much as most people, because basically I was trained very heavily not to have. And they'd literally stick little bits of paper under my nose, so when they fluttered, it would annoy me and various other things. I mean, oh, the whole perspective. That's, oh, that's amazing. I, I've never thought about these. These are great little tricks they could use. Yeah. Oh, in terms of really serious 
seriously brain damaging people. No, into- it's not brain damaging at all. It made you conscious of something. Yeah. That's not a that's not brain damage. I mean, there may be brain damage associated with it, but it's not with your knowledge of how your body works. Mm. You know, the, yeah, they fucked you up because of all a bunch of other bullshit associated yeah. with it. But that knowledge uh, and that that awareness of your own body function is not, how can there be anything bad about that? In parallel to this, I was also doing a lot of public speaking, and I still really enjoy public speaking. In fact, it's one of the great sadnesses that my current life, when I lived in the Bay Area, I used to do public speaking. I talked at NYU. I mean, when I went back there recently was one of the rare opportunities in the past decade I've had to public speak. But, you know, I teach courses at work and things like that. I like standing up in front of an audience. Um, And it is something that is very much around the same time as when I did the the speech therapy. but you're right, the focus on language. But again, I come from a family of, of, of extreme pedants. Yeah, and cor- yeah, yeah. So you got, uh, you got a, a, more than one dimension of this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, you're anyway. almost as, as obnoxious as I am. Well, no, you may even be more obnoxious than So me. this is the interesting point. When, we start, when you started referring to... This is the interesting thing with Gerald Dion. He took quite extreme exception to this notion that he was obnoxious or an asshole or these kind of things. And I think there is a very much a um, kind of camaraderie of assholeness that you describe, (laughs) which maybe may not translate to... Listen, Gerald, I'm sorry, you know, but I I, I really got to say that everyone I've ever met can be a real asshole at times. (laughs) You know, maybe you aren't. I don't know. But, uh, and I'm open to that as a possibility, but you'll be the first one. (laughs) I thought Chris Chris Abbott is one of the few people that I think of in terms of, and I know um, as an asshole. No, 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 no. It's, it's actually being. Uh, um, is it is it possible to say? Is it possibly? Is it possible to say saintly without having any religious connotation? Oh, yeah, like, yeah. A person with so, truly yeah. nothing but the best intention. Mm. I've had. A, I mean, I think Chris Abbott, in terms of my interaction with him, and I know you know he's, he's described both with you and with me associated with the kind of menial nature of his life. Um, but uh, I, I guess, yeah, he has been such a phenomenal um, influencer in terms of just really good selfless work yeah. that I've experienced. And I mean, I do a bit of that as well in terms of some of these things, but I really think Chris and I, the, the parts of Chris's personality like that lays with the parts of my personality like that. And I think Chris is one of the, few people that I've worked with quite heavily over the past few years where I really am yet to see um, I'm yet to see a kind of asshole characteristic yeah. Yeah, I'm humbled start- by that I know uh, I know a <laughs> yeah. couple of people like that and I, but I've just resigned myself to the fact that I'm an asshole at times and yeah. I'm just not going to let that uh, you know bug me anymore you know you know I'm an asshole yeah. I got it <laughs> I wanted to say in stark contrast to Gerald Dion, who... Who is never an asshole. Who is no, 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 no. <laughs> That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that Gerald just needs to embrace the reality as opposed to trying to deny it through, uh, through pages of prose. Um, but no, I... I well, there I, may be... Well, I don't know Gerald, so you're right. I don't, you know, maybe I'll have nothing but experiencing of, of his I think he's running scared, actually. That's what I want to say, Heron. I think Gerald is currently running scared talking to me. <laughs> Uh-oh. Now so, we're at it. We really threw down the gauntlet with that. I'm, I'm yeah, re- repeatedly saying that. Um, 
I guess, yeah, I guess the, the, the thing with Gerald in particular is that he, he's someone who I think you could riff with on a lot of topics, but there are certain things that can get him irate very quickly. And my suspicion is somewhere through the conversation, something well, like that. Well, we should start there, because if we can get past that, then, we, then mm. we'll really be free. Mm. Mm. Gerald, uh, I invite you uh, to, my Skype uh, name is Heron underscore Stone. Uh, <laughs> let's talk. Very good. Very good. Uh, I, I, I've had a number of really pleasant conversations with Gerald. I don't want to... Um, belittle him but there are certain topics that i know will rile him and i must i have a good friend that uh that i brought up a subject once with and i and i started to push it and i could actually see that if i really pushed it much further he was probably going to attack me physically Mm, yeah i've had similar experience and i was shocked actually (laughs) you know because i just i was i was being pushy there's no doubt about it but yeah uh, and uh, that really that was one of the time and this is a, a good friend actually well not I don't want to get into that. But in any case, uh, it sort of scared me and made me realize that you have to be careful because those fucking humans can get violent if you push the wrong button. No matter how enlightened or intelligent or anything they may be, there are certain things that some people, you cannot push those buttons, and you better be careful if you do. Yeah. I'm a bit that way, although certainly my in-laws have softened me, but I'm a bit that way with regards to anti-Semitism. Uh-huh. It's something that, um, certainly with some friends in the past... You I've... have to see it that those people are brain damaged. Yeah. You know, they're, they're not anti-Semites because they're actually conscious, yeah. <laughs> you know, and have chosen yeah. that. They're fucking brain damaged. True. It's like somebody who had a stroke. Yeah, or they just they just lack the particular life experiences that uh, that, that nah, people. There are other people the same. No, they're brain damaged. They're fucked up. <laughs> you know, they're yeah. just fucked up, and and uh, you, you should have sympathy for them, if anything. I guess I or be, avoid them. Yeah. The best thing is to just stay the hell away from them, and then you're okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, the the funny thing that I find my father-in-law is a good example of this because he he his father changed his name, moved away from the area that he'd lived previously and sat up in Southern California. So whenever my father-in-law makes anti-Semitic jokes, I I point out to him that there's probably, to quote the classic Goodfellas line, one Jew in the room between me and him. Uh, (laughs) And uh, so, yeah, I think the... My ability now to use humour is probably... And you're right, for me in particular, there was an age component to it. So... In my late teens and early 20s, there was still a huge amount of testosterone coursing oh, around. Oh, yeah, that'll do it. <laughs> and uh, now, while there is still some testosterone, it's probably considerably more me. You've channeled those energies into yeah. other areas. Yeah, yes. writing and, yes, yeah. yes. But, um, you know, I guess we've reacquainted ourselves. We did have a dog a year ago, actually. But we have this dog that was my wife's grandmother's now. And um, I'm more sensitive to your discussions associated with canines recently now we actually have a dog. In terms of the... I mean, I've always had this perspective, and we've talked about it a bit associated with the wise dog phenomena. Hmm. But this is not something that you've really experienced. Uh, well, I'll tell you, I've, I have noticed, I've got a new dog here for, well, for the last, say, three months. This, this mm-hmm. uh, you, if I mentioned it much or, okay, yeah, okay. Uh, 
it's a little tiny dog, but it seems quite intelligent. I mean, I, I, it actually watches little birds. Mm. You know, now the big dog looks. Is it a terrier of some description? No, it looks. I don't know what it is. It's some short-haired. It looks sort of like a boxer. But mm-hmm. it, but it's That's like it's only about uh, about maybe ten inches high, mm. and it's skinny, mm. and and, uh, and it's got flopped over ears. And That's it's, a terrier. Okay, well whatever it is, I don't know. Yeah. But damn, you know if that thing doesn't and and airplanes, he'll follow an mm. airplane in the yeah. sky. You know, and the other dog doesn't pay any attention at all to any of that kind of stuff. That's a golden retriever. The other dog, basically. yeah. Right. yeah. So the, my my view with regards to dogs is that there were dogs that were bred for practical purposes. These are things like terriers, yeah. various forms of sheep dogs, these kind of things. And they every possible sense is tuned in terms of things like I mean, terriers were primarily ratters and and mouses in their you know seventeenth and eighteenth century guises, and that in itself creates a certain degree of tenacity. Now we use them as pets. There was an interesting discussion actually in the UK, which was kind of quintessentially British, associated with whether dogs for the blind or these kind of things were an appropriate use of canine labour. And that was a fascinating, because that would never happen in this country. I mean, there's, there's that whole narrative associated with dogs should just be dogs in terms of pets versus dogs should have a productive purpose. I mean, that is really a different kind of conversation that probably wouldn't exist in this country. But in the UK, we watched a a program once about um, a woman who was blind but refused to have a blind guide dog because she thought that it was, in fact, cruel to the dog. Yeah. Um, Whereas my view with regards to those kind of functional roles for the dogs is it actually shows us quite dramatically how heavily we undermine uh, dogs in particular in terms of their true intelligence and their true abilities. I mean, guide dogs can measure spaces for the humans that they are looking after and work out whether or not the human will fit through the space that they're walking through. The amount of intelligence yeah. and, uh, you know, it's, it's phenomenal in these yeah. kind of... Uh, so... Well, of I course, guess- that's... that's- that, of course, that's not phenomenal at all. That's just called any animal's ability to do that. But to transfer that, to again, mm, to intellectualize exactly. that, mm. and yeah, that's fast. That's actually I never heard that before. But that that's true. I guess mm. it, it can tell the width of a door whether a wheelchair will fit through the door or not. Maybe mm. or wow, yeah, all that stuff. And the thing that interests me, the dog that we have, his previous owner. Was in what her kind leg. of dog is it that you have? He's he's a large he's a large sized terrier, so he's probably about seventy pounds. Uh, he's very long and thin. He looks a bit like a schnauzer in the jowls, mm. but he's a he's a medium. He's a large medium to large sized dog. Yeah. Um, however, he aside from um, protesting if anyone comes to the front door and these kind of things. He used to forcibly take my wife's grandmother for a walk, for a mile walk, uh, which is a practice that he, he's, he's old and arthritic. This is the thing. He's 14 and his back legs aren't particularly good, but you put him on a leash and, you know, he's just, he's just out there. But the main thing is that you just get a sense of real, I don't, I get the sense through the eyes, as you described, the intelligence in terms of the eyes yeah, moving. Yeah. When we first, um, when he was at the in-laws place before he came here, he sat and watched extended conversation, and you could tell that there was more going on than him just yeah. following us around. Yeah, um, yeah. Mine uh, actually will sit there and look at me. 
and hmm. watch me because uh, I, I, I'll leave the door open. And he, he, he knows not, well, she actually knows not to come in, but the door's open and I'm sitting here at the computer and he'll sit there, she'll sit there for half an hour hmm. and just watch me. Hmm. <laughs> you know, I don't know what the hell's going on in there, but. Mm. You know, you can see, yeah. you know, whether she turns her head, she looks, and she, you know, she's just paying attention. I don't know whether this is a form of uh, animal bigotry, but I certainly feel that terriers, in particular, and they can use it for. I mean, the terrier that we had previously, uh, we had for about a year, was a Jack Russell, and he was a multiple previous owner pound dog who was about five, and he was a real terror. He literally terror. I mean, I was fine with him. He loved me, but he completely terrorized my wife. And I came home from work one day, and he wasn't there anymore. Um, she's taken him back to the same hill shelter. That, so, so, but I can see that terriers aren't just necessarily uh, dogs for for good. They can uh, utilize their powers for evil as well. Well, this one uh, chews everything. Yes, and uh, he's destroyed. The owner of the house is really unhappy about all the cords to his, <laughs> of his equipment that no longer works. Yeah. <laughs> no, a dog will do that. A cat will do that, too. Well, but yeah. the other dog, Sydney, doesn't do that. He's just cool, you know. Mm. He doesn't chew after... I mean, he likes his chew stuff. If I give him something to chew on, he'll go for it. He likes oh, the yes. rawhide things. But uh, he doesn't have to chew on every damn thing he finds, like mm. like trees in the backyard. The little This little tiny dog is actually killed some shrubbery <laughs> you know because he just likes chewing on it <laughs> yeah the other thing with terriers small terriers in particular if you have a piece of rope or something if you pull on one end and the dog pulls on the other we had a um, my wife had a miniature schnauzer that she had for probably eight, maybe 12 13 years and he would love nothing more than walk up to you with a bit of rope in one end yeah. of the mouth and insist that you pull it yeah. And he would go for for years, you know, into into his, um, oh, you know, yeah. ten, eleven, would uh, would drag that thing, try to drag oh, you around. I know. Yeah. Oh, I know. So, yeah, the, the the way they play, you know, the whole thing about, and we think just dogs, you know, I think probably most, and somewhere I read this too, is that most life probably actually can experience joy. And that whole idea, when I first read that, blew my mind. The idea, I mean, that's different, obviously, at different levels, but that birds Mm. enjoy their lives, Mm. you know, and that worms enjoy their lives, (laughs) you know. And and you think about it, why not? Yeah, yeah. I've certainly observed it in um, lizards and spiders and snails. I think they're, I spent a lot of my time in my childhood observing these creatures. Um, and I think, yeah, they all do. I mean, they, See, I have they, a fear of spiders. Oh, do you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Somebody, oh. I even remember it. Somebody got some great big spider out of a bush uh, and put it on me when yeah. I was like four years old. But that was just life in Australia. Oh, You've got to imagine yeah. that you would have them. You, well, you just life your... everywhere. But some, you know, mm. I was fucked up. <laughs> you yeah. know, again, I was brought up in America. You know, yeah. you can't put True. life on me. Shit, <laughs> I'll never get over it. I still, yes, yeah, spiders just give me the creeps. Yeah. <laughs> and you don't have that kind of feeling at all for them, then, right? You like them? 
I wouldn't let them... I mean, there's an account in the 93 writing of waking up to a spider crawling across my face, a relatively large spider, and I had those experiences through my childhood just camping. It isn't pleasurable. I mean, you know, your response is... Uh, and you've got to swat them in a particular way just to literally throw them off your face. Otherwise, they'll dig in... You know, their, their response time is very swift. Yeah. Um, but I guess my sense with regards to all these things is that they are you know they are part of the world that surrounds you well, that's and thinking and have, so yeah that yeah. all makes sense logically but to me it's terror it, it never gets to the point of thinking about all oh, these are my brothers and you sisters. don't think exactly but i mean look <laughs> when you wake up and your eye is under the abdomen you're not thinking in that <laughs> no, circumstance yeah. so you're, you're well, I, i'm never thinking when it comes to spiders mm. <laughs> <laughs> Did you ever did you ever cycle or drive a motorbike or anything like that? Oh, I had a motorcycle for quite a while. Have you ever had insects fly into your mouth? Uh, yeah, a couple times, sure. Yeah, because I mean that was also an experience. Yeah, that that, didn't like, bother, that doesn't bother me unless it was a spider. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> Or a bumblebee or something. No, oh, I yes. have had that, but it was like gnats or something, and, and yeah. they were inconsequential. In fact, they didn't taste that bad. Yeah, flies in Australia are about the size of raisins, and okay, to that could the, be that could create quite an impression. Yeah. And, yeah, <laughs> Sixty not, miles an hour. It's yeah. not particularly pleasant, um, but yeah. I think yeah. Actually, it's it's funny because the there really is nothing like that. I mean, I, I can imagine probably in the deep south, maybe you know Louisiana or Georgia, there may be insect life like that in terms of <laughs> lots of flying insects. Yeah. But certainly, it was yeah, just only motorcycle territory. Uh, <laughs> and the mosquitoes as well. I only had a stronger experience with mosquitoes in Malaysia. I'm not sure what Vietnam was like for mosquitoes. But in Malaysia, um, in the bottom of my mother's garden, we had to put on that repellent where they would fly maybe half an inch away from your skin. Yeah. And you'd literally end up with this glove of mosquitoes that were flying around your hands because yeah. they were just so dense. Yeah. Um, but yes, I don't know. It's funny because I think my cousins, for example, live in northern New South Wales and they have to deal with not only huge cockroaches, which is pretty well a Southern California thing as well. I remember even Northern California getting some cockroaches. Oh, yeah. But frogs, like lots and lots of frogs. Oh, I love frogs. Yeah, but I, I guess... Was, see, I was a... I ha, yeah, frogs are just cool, man. I love mm -hmm. frogs. Well, can you imagine waking up with frogs on your face? Uh, that wouldn't bother me. No, I mean, if I knew... I mean, again, if I lived around frogs and they were all over the place all the time, I mean, I probably would wouldn't want him in the house and if i but I, if i woke up with one on my face it wouldn't bother me mm. yeah. i love frogs they're cool <laughs> what can i say yeah well thanks to my wife's parents house and the like vast quantities of cats that they get through we own a persian cat and it is a very different kind of creature. It's not like a cat at all. <coughs> and the thing that strikes me I about... I don't think there is anything that's quite like a cat. <laughs> They're all pretty damn weird. Well, <laughs> but, but Persian cat is a very particular form of creature. And um, his face is concave. Yeah, I know what they look like, but I mean, they're different well, behaviorally, you mean? Completely different behaviorally. Oh, okay. the, I, thing I no about, um, the thing about him is most of them either have slightly convex or even 
more than slightly cut. Yeah. And his face is completely concave. His nose is the, is the thinnest point of his face. The thing about it is that he needs to purposefully look at everything. Uh-huh. So he can't just glance at something. He must stare at it. And he is absolutely fascinated by insects. And we'll hunt them down. We'll yeah. hunt them down to yeah. the amazing. So my feeling is that if we lived in a cockroach area or things like that, this cat would be kept busy and would enjoy every minute of it. I mean, when we have a grasshopper and <laughs> yeah. stuff. Well, just quit, quit mopping all, all the time, you know. You, exactly. you can get some cockroaches there, probably. <laughs> it's very strange. Prior to us owning any cats, we were told that you could never get fleas in Las Vegas because of the conditions. Now, uh-huh. first cat... Uh, we picked up in, at three weeks as a very malnourished kitten was completely infested with fleas and we were able to clean it off her. we couldn't use any um, poison we had to wash her repeatedly and having had that experience there is uh, it, there are different creatures in Las Vegas that you don't normally get outside the desert is really a an interesting environment, and we haven't had much insect life here. Uh-huh. We do get ants. We do get very, very small ants, and occasionally slightly larger flying ants. Uh-huh. But aside from that, and we've had a couple of what I would call maybe um, nickel-sized spiders mm-hmm. that still scare my wife. My wife is a, a probably, similar to you, quite an arachnophobe, and frankly, any kind of creature that flies or... That kind of stuff. No, is, I is, like most of them. It's just mm. spiders. It, you know, uh, bugs in general I find really cool. Mm. In the UK, they have a thing called a bumblebee, which oh, yeah. is which is a, probably the size of um, like a fifty cent piece, or maybe even larger than that. Worth, and it's round. Yeah, and yeah, fuzzy. We have them here too. They're here in California. Are they? Yeah. Are they? I'm sure Not, well, I've... I haven't seen one in many years, yeah. but I have seen them. Yeah. yeah, the ones in the UK time. are larger. They're almost like blimp-like insects, basically. <laughs> they yeah. kind of yeah. hover around. Yeah. And my wife is completely freaked out by those things. Oh, really? um, That's too but, bad. Yeah. Yeah, uh, ju- what, what they call June bugs here in California oh, yes. are among yes. my favorites. Uh, <laughs> they're just gorgeous bugs, you know. And I remember when I was a kid, I was a little bit afraid of them because when they got on your hand, you know what I'm talking about? Yes. You yeah. know, when they get on your hand, they really get a hold of you with those little hooks. Yeah. You know, and that sort of freaked me out when I was a little kid. But once I got used to it, and I realized that was just them securing themselves, they weren't trying, you know. Uh, I just love them. I love getting them in my hands and looking at them. And, uh, oh, yeah. Yeah. In the the part of Australia I'm from, we would get these beetles that were called uh, Christmas beetles. I guess what we would call gift-giving season beetles here. Um, (laughs) And they were were probably an inch and a half by an inch. And they were were real protein sources for the local Aborigines. And the... um, my mother's cats would, we'd have like these long haul runners in the house in Australia, and my mother's cats would sell them literally under the, uh, under these uh, rugs. They'd lift it up with a paw, push the beetle under, squash it down, and hold it there for a few months. And then after the season had passed, they would be lifting it up, scraping out the beetle, and having a good feed on them. Because they were literally, like, I guess... Sure, bugs are good good protein source. Yeah, good protein source. Yeah, much better than cows and things like that, yeah. Yeah. The thing with the Christmas beetles in particular was that we would get such a large volume that the rugs sometimes would have almost like a cat-sized ball-length <laughs> run of these things that it, obviously... And they had amazing colours and then just died. They had a yeah. wide bright colours on the wings, but they were large beetles. Were they iridescent? Uh, mm, oh, yes. Yeah, yes. yeah. That's the thing about the, the uh, 
the bugs I'm talking about, the June bugs, is they yeah. have a sort of blue green yeah. metallic. Metallic, uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. They're just beautiful. God, oh, mm. they're just gorgeous bugs. <laughs> but anyway, so I think we've we've riffed on a lot of stuff this evening, Karen. Do, do you have another topic, or are you uh, are you reaching? Oh, the let me think here. Uh, nothing's coming up, so I guess I'm done. I think we're out of topics. So let me explain the next few weeks, just so we can get that uh, clarified. Um, I'm going to be available next week. The week following, I'll be in Reno, but aside from working through the day, I'll be stuck in a hotel room in the evening. So I can certainly get on Skype on my um, iPhone, and we can we can continue on the discussion there. Then I'm having a week in the Bay Area with my brother, um, and we're spending time with... Bruce Damer and a few other people, but we, we may be free in the evening. I think it might be a bit too eccentric to do a recording um, while I'm with my brother, and then I'm back. Well, on the so other I, hand, it might be cool. You know, it might we might get him involved. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't know. My brother, um, I don't know. It would be interesting. Well, play it by ear. There's no need to make it by ear. Yeah, right yeah. now, actually, all of this, you know, it, since this is your game anyway, uh, <laughs> you know, you you tell me when we do it, and we do it. Yes. yes. There's no promotion from Heron whatsoever. <laughs> it works just fine, you know. And you can badmouth Nevadans and talk to other Australians, do a wide variety of things, and, you know, this thing never comes up. So it is actually interesting that you have had a few of your listeners that do listen to these conversations yes. too, though. Yes, I was, uh, I've heard a reference to the Stone Ape several times now. Yeah. And what in, in terms of the recent phenomena of more people getting in contact with you, is it a partial lazing through Stone Ape or is it purely through TeamSpeak just picking up through the next film? Um, I don't know. Um, there seems to be a crossover now. There are people who are... I'm not, I'm not sure. That's the thing is I don't know. I, my sense is that there are a couple people who are actually doing both. Mm. And mm. I don't know whether one's, you know, how they seeded each other, which way, which, what their on entry point was. Yeah. Um, and so the recent conversation with Jesse, for example, he's solely on TeamSpeak, and right. the the film producer fellow. Did you contact him initially? No, well, I heard he a friend of mine uh, who also does uh, podcasting interviewed him. Oh, okay. And uh, and I heard it, and I and I watched the film, and so I figured mm. I'd uh, talk to him. You know. Mm. And uh, so that's I, I I think I called I called in probably during the previous podcast and introduced myself and invited oh, okay. him to to talk with me. Mm. Mm. Yeah, that's going to be a multi uh, that's going to be a multi conversation deconstruction there, Harry. What uh, that one talk you mean? No, no, that fellow. I think he. Oh, um, oh yeah, I think there's some potential there. I think uh, yeah. he's done some good stuff, and uh, you know, and he's he's. You know, he's asking all the right questions, and mm. <laughs> you know, he's doing. I the, yeah, the well, I don't know. I, I'm not sympathetic to those because I think the the notion of asking all the right questions is very different than actually independent. Because there are a lot of there are a lot of Ebbs and Flows, and I haven't seen the his film. Um, I'm not even really sure if I want because I'm so familiar with that genre that really it is a genre that I'm bored with um, intellectually. 
And certainly the stuff that he described seems to indicate that he has basically traversed ex- almost exactly yeah, the same. Not, yeah, there's, there's probably no point in you watching it. You've yeah. seen the, the stuff before. You know? Yeah, and I'm familiar it. with the sound bites. Yeah. And I'm familiar with the, yeah. it's, I, I, do, I do really like Stephen Hawking's line with, I'm done with questions about God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I thought there was, uh, there, one of the things that I really loved in there is the guy who was in the morgue. Mm. You know, you remember mm. him? I haven't seen it, but I remember you referencing him. So yes, I, I understand the phenomenon of being around the dead. Yeah, and, uh, and, and, and he was—he was, of, he was yeah. uh, instead of being creeped out by all these mutilated bodies, he was mm. inspired by it. Mm. You know? We have about—and this is only a recent phenomenon. It's only really in the past three or four days. In fact, really since the weekend, we have about eighty percent of my wife's grandmother's house now here. Um, and it is actually quite phenomenal in terms of the experience of going through mm. someone's life, oh, wow. quite yeah. fundamentally. Yeah, um, sure. yeah. And the thing that I'm finding interesting, originally the anticipation was that a portion of it would be sold. Um, but I don't think, I mean, we, we have the space for the stuff, and a lot of it is really, really fascinating. Oh, cool. In fact, the stuff associated with your um, your adopted father because there are things associated, very small items, mainly little books and things like that, yeah. associated with service stations, uh, what gas stations, I guess you call them, in Southern California in the 30s and 40s. And there are all these little things that we're finding. And really, um, she left a lot of written accounts on bits of paper and things that she put into things. So we're really finding a discovery. Oh, There's man. a lot of 8 millimeter footage. Michelle also... Is there thanked- a website here? Can you... Tr- uh, you know, uh, so the her by, by making a website. My wife's already done this through Facebook because basically, she, prior to um, she, my oh, that's wife, perfect. Uh, yeah, give her a, a Facebook page. Well, my wife is already doing that. Yeah, um, she basically is using the. She had the slides of her life, which comes in a very large suitcase and covers everything from. And you've digitized all this stuff already. We've digitized probably about a third of that. My wife wants to re-digitize it. We have like a full-size scanner that has yeah. a little slide thing, and we want to get like a proper slide yeah, scan. Yeah, right. But um, she had an amazing life, and she really, I think, is someone who, I mean, I, in the past decade, probably spent about 20 days with her and had a lot of really nice conversations with her. And really deep conversations as well about a wide variety of things, mainly history. I mean, I'm really fascinated by the part of the world that um, that you live in. The, the fact that there is no accurate history, well, there is an accurate history, but no one wants to tell it associated with Southern California through the, you know, the turn of last century through to about the 60s. No one wants to talk about the long-standing history of kind of race riots and a variety of other things that... Um, well, some you know, people do talk about it. No, you can find... I mean, but you're right. The, the majority of people would just yeah. as soon yeah. watch television. Exactly. Well, I think <laughs> uh, there, is such a, there is such a striking birth of Southern California in terms of the populations that arrived there. And really, um, my wife's grandmother really was... Uh, I wrote her eulogy and, mentioned, and said this explicitly in her eulogy that she was the last of the pioneer generation in terms of the Southern California... Yeah. Um, and the way that she treated her, her time there. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, when you say being surrounded by, I like to think of it as in terms of being surrounded by life in large part, but also, I mean, obviously there are, there are realities associated with this. But you're right, I think um, my sense, particularly the uh, 
the tiny and intricate parts, I think, are really critical to document in some way. So it'll be done. Yeah, I'm thinking that's just wonderful for her to have a website of her life, you know? <laughs> well, I, at I least, was here, you know? You see, I want to do the same thing. My other grandfather was um, was a, a desert rat. He fought in the Eighth Army in the Second World War. And early on, um, his um, unit um, uh, blew up a German tank, and there was a camera inside the tank. So he took the camera and basically took photographs of the remainder of his service through um, uh, North Africa and through Italy and all these areas. So my understanding is that there is a combination of very short initial combination of German footage of the of photos of the the previous owner of the camera, <laughs> and then my grandfather taking wow. all the cameras back to us. And this is another thing that oh, I want to teach. That's an awesome story. I mean, just the concept of yes. starting out with the last few pictures of the German guy, and then all of a sudden a whole new thing. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's amazing. So my uncle, wow. who in, him, he himself is a similar character in terms of just an amazing uh, personal history, and also he's an, he's an archivist. I mean, he's not... Formerly an archivist, he was... Um, no, he's a he, pack rat, is what you mean, right? No, I think he's relatively sensitive about it. He has sold a lot of stuff through his life, but he knows what's important. Yeah, okay, I'm just I sort of joking. I know you're yeah. paraphrasing, but yeah. Um, but this stuff is certainly something that I want to spend a few days digitizing sometime in the next yeah. ten years, just because I think that is absolutely and fascinating. you have access to all this stuff? Well, I mean, he has primary access, but it's just, he said, if I turn up... If you want it, you can have it. Exactly. Oh, man. And I think the important thing is just... How many photos are there altogether? Thousands, apparently. The other thing is that my grandmother on my father's side was involved with the D-Day invasion. She was a stenographer for that period, and she had, although this apparently has been lost, she had the original instructions associated with D-Day, which I think would just be... Again, phenomenal archive, but apparently that stuff has been lost. But the stuff of my grandfather still exists, and yeah, I'm, I, I guess you know, it's, it's a, um, it's an illness in part, the wanting to do this. But for me personally, particularly because um, I just, I mean, for example, my grandfather was bombed by the Americans. He he suffered friendly fire in the Eighth Army, and there, the history associated with these things. And I had a pretty good relationship with my grandfather. Uh, this is not the one who died recently. My other grandfather died in the uh, about 2004, actually. Um, but I went and spent time with him independently of my family in my late teens. Uh, and he was a very impactful character. Um, so, yeah, I think there's all this stuff is coming together in a documenting sense. Uh, just what form it takes. But my, what my wife is doing is actually through Facebook posting frequent photos associated with her grandmother in her profile image. Yeah. So people are seeing that and, uh, yeah. And, yeah I think good memory. I think, I think she deserves her own Facebook page. <laughs> it would be great. You see, the problem here is that the perception, the, um, I mean, ironically already, my the, the phenomena that I described associated with my mother's family and their perspectives of death have already impacted in terms of the, situation with the grandmother and you know my mother's perspective associated with how this thing needs to be represented so i think probably privately these things can be gathered and certainly the way that it's put together could be done in a way well maybe you know maybe website is the way i don't know but at least the information is being digitized yeah yeah well yeah what you do with it you'll you know what we will see <laughs> mm. Mm. well i mean I'm, I'm, yeah go ahead 
I was married only a decade ago, and the photographs of my wedding seem to be like for ten years. Yeah, about that. Really, ten years? No, it's ten years next year. But the photographs already look old. Yeah, I was (laughs) looking at. No, I'm just saying that's that's quite an achievement. That's you know, (laughs) congratulations, man. I don't look at it that way. Well, I'd I'd like. I mean, I think. I mean, I think, you know, there, there are certainly things that, um, I mean, children in particular are things that I'd, I'd like to, you know, move, move towards in the next 10 years at least. But no, I think the whole nature of marriage, which doesn't really come through any of your, um, is that it is, uh, I, I like the statistic in terms of five to one, and I think that ratio is very true. Um, you need to realize that basically yeah. the other has, has important needs and wants that are, uh, I memorialize. You actually have to be a nicer person than I am. (laughs) I'm interested in deconstructing the two years that you were married because this seems to be some uh, some part of your your uh, prehistory that you know we've brushed over previous conversations, but maybe at some later day. Well, okay, yeah, I'm I'm up to it. There really isn't that much to it, you know. It was a love affair uh, that ended, like many Hmm. others. It's just that we lived together for two years well you know because to get her green card Mm. Mm. i mean we were already living we were going to live together anyway so it just seemed like a reasonable thing to do you know we probably wouldn't have lasted uh two years i mean the thing is we just sort of set that as a goal we're going to do this long enough to get the green card if it if we hadn't been married, we probably would have split up after a year. <laughs> Very interesting. Well, okay, so so you at least appreciate some of the dynamics of marriage on quite a a direct level. Well, that's why I'm not married. Mm. Yeah, I'm just too mm. selfish. I, my life is so. About your me. description of marriage seems to resonate more as a kind of kibbutz from. Uh... Oh yeah, absolutely. It's <laughs> a it's a it's a fraternity, a philosophical, uh, practical fraternity. Well, not for it could be men or women. Doesn't make any mm. difference as long mm. as you're not fucking them. They can come in. Mm. <laughs> you know. That's the only rule. The only the issue is whether you love them and support them and want to spend the rest of your life living with them. Hmm. Mm. Well, Heron, it's been a pleasure as always. We will, uh, I guess, reconvene sometime next week. And At your convenience. Yeah, occasionally, you're, I, I would have recorded last night. I'd fallen down the stairs. I was mildly concussed. <laughs> I still would have recorded. <laughs> Someone was talked out. But anyway, yeah, until yeah. next time. Okay, good night. Good night. <laughs>